should probably pick out a few hymns for this morning to play. And I haven't even looked at the hymns we're singing. Sigh from the back corner. That wasn't me. That's a normal sigh. I'm usually that way. That's a normal sigh. That's what I said. Mm. Hey, Rachel, stop. That microphone got turned way crazy for a second. I think it's a point straight up. 
Pastor two. He's a loop. Technically, Aunt Joe is two.
Good morning. Good morning. I'm going to go over a couple of announcements here. Uh, if you have your bulletins, uh, kind of a short list today. Uh, put your offering envelopes in the offering box. We're doing the counting now uh, here at the church. And Andrea, still our contact number. Uh, be aware that uh, our acts and facts are, are here for October. For October. Is this November? Well, we got lots of them back there, so please avail yourself. And as you leave the church service, please take a couple of minutes to update your birthdays and anniversaries and uh, phone numbers and addresses if any of that stuff has changed so that we can uh, better contact all of you and uh, take note of uh, everything, the events going on in your lives. Uh, a sad note, I don't know if all of you are aware of, but we were made aware this week that Linda Steele uh, has passed away this, this past week uh, from the COVID virus. Her husband Jim and her were longtime members of the church uh, up until fairly recent. Uh, Jim is still suffering with uh, the virus, and his daughter, Dawn, uh, is also uh, trying to uh, survive this. So we ask your prayer for them as they go through this. Keep our brother Tom Roth also in your prayers as Brenda passed because of an accident-related uh, injury uh, last month. Uh, Got a card here from actually my son. Uh, the church donated a little money to help him. He was injured uh, about a month and a half ago, severed a tendon on his hand, and uh, is, it's going to be a long recovery process for him. So the church helped him out a little bit financially, and they just sent a, a small card here that says, Thank you, and God bless the Grapenton family. Uh, we'll post this on the board if you'd like to see that. Does anybody have any updates or announcements uh, that I have not been made privy to to bring out? No? Okay. Our opening... Uh, Bill. Yes. Rachel, what date did we just celebrate Bill? Uh, I just heard it today. <laughs> next weekend, next Saturday. This Saturday, what time? How about one? <laughs> one o'clock? One o'clock this coming Saturday to decorate the hall and the, the sanctuary of the church. I, I take it we will not be worried about social distancing or total amount of people showing up to decorate? Okay, um, let's let's all try and be here and uh, make a show of force for for Christ in decorating the church. 
Um, scripture for meditation today is taken from the book of Psalm. Psalm 100, page 937 in your pew Bible. Would you kindly stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Dan, would you kindly lead us in, in prayer, please? Please remain standing. 
you take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 559-559 in the brown. Five, five, nine in the brown. <clears throat> See your hand first. 618 in the red. No red. Six eighteen. Oh, there's six sixteen. And a reason for the this hymn this morning? one of my favorites. All right, 618.
Our scripture reading for this morning was taken from the book of Colossians. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, and that's going to be page 1834 in your pew Bible. When you get to the the chapter, would you please stand with us? <clears throat> Colossians 3, 
verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father in heaven, may you bless this holy and inspired reading to our hearts. In the name of Christ, amen. You take your brown brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 561, 561 in the brown. Am I right? Yeah.
Jared, I could use a water. Thank you. My fault. I, I forgot to get it. Our scripture text this morning is Colossians 3, verses 12 and following. As we come to this text in Colossians this morning, one of the things that jumped out at me uh, was the command. Yes, you heard right. The command to be thankful. Verse 15. What does it say? It says, let a peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. Be thankful. Thankfulness is again expressed using the word gratitude in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Colossians 3.16. It's again found in verse 17 and enjoins us. Whatever you do, whether in word or or do, deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. Then if you jump across the page to Colossians 4, verse 2 reads, Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So you see, time and time again, this text is just loaded with injunctions to be thankful to be thankful why would God's people have to be commanded to be thankful I mean it would seem that gratitude to God would be a natural outflow of the goodness of God towards us God treats us well God treats us better than we deserve God has made us kings and priests with his son. We're drawn by his spirit to repentance and faith. In Christ, we have averted the judgment and the wrath of God to come. So considering all these things, why wouldn't thankfulness flow naturally from our hearts? That we have some difficulty being thankful to God at times implies that there are certain impediments to thankfulness for which we must be on our guard. Thankfulness is not necessarily automatic. And it's not automatic because sin enters and it colors how we look at things. I mean, if we do not see things rightly, we will not react rightly through the goodness of God. So you have to have right views of what's taking place in your life and primarily right views of God and how he relates to his people. So I want to look at some of the impediments to thankfulness today and try to bring correction to that scripturally. 
And as we do, let's ask the Lord to bless us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the, <coughs> the truth of it. We want to be a thankful people. We're not always thankful, but we want to be. Teach us to be thankful. Help us to see how we can be thankful. And when we feel, I think the problem is when we feel sorry for ourselves, we don't feel much like thanking God or anybody else, for that matter, for the things that are good in our life. So I pray that you will help us. The world marches on day in, day out. They're not thankful. They just think that they are masters of their own destiny. So help us, Lord, to be better than the world, to be indeed the children of God that we are, and to express this great gift of the Spirit, to be thankful. And we'll praise you for what you do in our lives, because thankful people are usually upbeat and we pray that you would help us to see that responsibility as we portray the gospel of Jesus to a watching world. We ask this for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking today at the subject of thankfulness. And I want to talk a little bit today about impediments to thankfulness. Things that would um, damper us from being thankful. Number one, I list the inability to see God in the circumstance. I think that's a good place to begin. If we don't see God in the circumstance, are we going to be thankful? So in talking about thankfulness this morning, I'm not so much referring to being thankful to other people for who and what they are, or for the kindnesses that they show us. I think we're pretty good on that. If somebody does some kindness to us, a friend, a relative, whatever. You can read the fact in Paul's prayers, time and time again, he gives statements of thankfulness to the people he's writing to, the Philippians, the Ephesians, and one so forth. He didn't take things for granted. And he was thankful for them and for the fact that they received the gospel. And then in receiving the gospel, they grew in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual things that he was thankful for. But I'm thinking more of thankfulness to God. To be truly thankful to God for his blessings, one must see God in the event. If you don't see him in the event, you're not going to be thankful. Jesus, in describing the love of God for humanity in general, told his disciples, But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind. Listen to this now. God is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Wow, let's read that again. God wants us to be like him. What is he like? He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. In the parallel text, Matthew's text, 
He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. So that's some ways in which God shows his kindness to ungrateful people. How does God express his kindness to men? Well, one way is that God dispenses the essentials needed to sustain life, sun and rain. It's mentioned in this text. Upon wicked farmers and wicked nations, as well as on righteous farmers and righteous nations. We could say this way, God feeds the world, doesn't he? No sun to warm the ground or to promote photosynthesis, you're going to have no crop. No rain to water the planted seeds. The sown seeds will not sprout, or if they do sprout, they'll only grow up about that high, and then they'll die off because of the sun. And droughts in our country and in other parts of the world have proved that to be the case. So in sending the rain and sending the sun, God is kind to people who deserve judgment instead. David saw this. David said, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Psalm 103, verse 10. Boy, that's a truth. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But the question arises, well, if God does send sun and rain upon the crops of the unrighteous as well as the righteous, how is it that the unrighteous are ungrateful? Or to use Luke's term, unthankful. Well, the major part of the answer is that the unrighteous, (laughs) they do not see God as the master of sun and rain preferring instead to attribute these essentials to the fickle finger of fate and the fictitious substitute for God they call Mother Nature. I remember years ago, the governor of Georgia, the state of Georgia, the governor of Georgia was in hot water politically because not only did he call the Georgians of his state to pray for rain, but he led the prayer in the state capitol. The governor led the prayer in the state capitol of Georgia for rain. Well, if you know anything about the Atlanta area, Lake Lanier, from which Atlanta draws its water, at that time was down more than 18 feet. Wow. And it was estimated that Atlanta only had water enough for but three more months. So the governor called upon the people of Georgia to pray for rain. And boy, did he take flack. Because he dared to associate the need for rain with the God of heaven Thus in the mind of many, well, you're violating the separation of church and state. So what about this? I mean, 
Was the governor right? Or were the politicians in the ACLU right? Does God control the weather so that praying to God for rain not only makes sense, but is the only sensible thing to do in times of drought? The Matthew text says that God causes, listen to this, his son, S-U-N, God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. So it's clear that God, (laughs) he is taking ownership of this brightest of stars in our galaxy, which lights and warms the earth. Genesis 1 verse 16 and 17 tells us, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the sun, the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Now, in this particular text, the Genesis text, they're not named sun and moon. They're just called the greater light, the lesser light. But the psalmist names them in Psalm 136, verse 2 and following. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day and the moon and the stars to govern the night. No, no question here of what's considered the great light or the lesser light. You say, well, this is all well and good, but the Psalms are poetry. You know, sometimes poets take liberties with the facts because they write allegorically. Poor Moses, he's not a scientist. What does he know about the origins of the sun, the moon, the stars, and their movements, and so on? Well, behind this acquisition is the hint, if not the direct challenge, that for God to claim the Son as his Son implies that he controls its movements and functions when everyone knows that the Son rises in the east and sets in the west. Regular is clockwork, so where is the supernatural control in any of that? And the assumption here is that the rising and setting function independently of God simply because it is so regular and so predictable. People talk about the laws of nature as though these laws dictate to God as well as to men what can and cannot happen. But did you know that there is an event in history when the sun did not rise and it did not set on schedule but was delayed by God on purpose? The text is Joshua chapter 10. Five Amorite kings formed a federation against the Gibeonites and Joshua mustered Israel's army to defend Gibeon because Gibeon was an ally of Israel. Joshua surprised the federation, and a great slaughter issued. 
And as they fled, we read, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, another weather phenomena. And more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. And Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation avenged itself on its enemies. The sun stopped in the middle of the day and delayed going down about a full day. There was never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Joshua 10, verse 11 and following. By the way, Habakkuk references the same day in his book, chapter 3, verse 11, centuries after its reference, its reference in the book <coughs> excuse me, of Joshua. While the 1970 story that NASA discovered the lost day using their computers has proven to be a hoax, it's true that the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, and others all have stories of a lost day, only explained with the events which happened in their culture at that time. These accounts, they're not biblical, that's true. They are accounts nonetheless that substantiate that other people throughout the world notice this phenomena at or about the same time that Joshua would have lived and fought the alliance of the five kings. God controls his S-U-N. You know that. The rotation of the earth, a day is one rotation. It's controlled by God. The same can be said for the rain or other forms of precipitation. Hail in the day of Joshua's battle that we just uh, took note of. Consider, however, as well, Job chapter 38, verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses 25 and following. Job is talking. He says, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain? And a path for the thunderstorms to water a land where there no man lives. A desert with no one in it. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens? When the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen. The implied answer is that it is God who does all these things. For this is the chapter in the book of Job in which God is questioning Job to demonstrate his power compared to that of puny man. He says in verse 4, Where were you, Job? When I laid the earth's foundation and then begins to explain all these things that God does without Job's permission, thank you very much. So when the governor of Georgia prayed with his constituents for rain, and it did rain, twice by the way, 
When that happens, we are witnessing cause and effect. While much more rain was needed in that sordid southeast, there was occasion to thank God for what may be the beginning of the end of the drought, and it was. But people do not see God in the circumstances, in this case weather. They don't see it. They will not be emboldened to be thankful. You've got to see God in the circumstances to thank him. So inability to see is an impediment. Secondly, there's another impediment. Greed is an impediment to thankfulness. When is provision enough? On Black Friday, the stores were jammed with people pushing, shoving, being very obnoxious as they fought over that one last red sweater on the rack or that last DVD player on the shelf. It happens every Christmas. While God is able to give his people immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, Ephesians 3.20, he has nevertheless set limits on the material bounty we receive lest we make idols out of things and love wealth more than God. Categorically, we are cautioned by Jesus. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well, Matthew 6, verse 33. And by the way, in context, the things that God promises to give are the essentials of life. Food, clothing, housing, and so on. And Jesus said the pagans run after all these things, verse 32. Again, Paul told Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain it's a real winner for we brought nothing into the world we can't take nothing out of it but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and hurtful desires that plunge man into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and some people eager for money uh, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. First Timothy 6, verse 6 and following. It's interesting here that Paul enjoins us to be content. Why would he do that? Well, it's because we're not content. <laughs> That's why. We want more or we want different. Or we want new, not old. We want the latest, not the dated. We want it now, not tomorrow. All that's discontent. We want what the world has. We want what our friend has. We want what our fellow brother in Christ has. And when God doesn't see fit to make us all equal economically... Discontent and greed can consume us. And discontentment can lead to other sins like thievery. 
When the Roman soldiers asked John the Baptist what they should do to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, this was his reply, John the Baptist to the Roman soldiers. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay. Wow. Luke 3, verse 14. You see, they were using their military clout and position to extort, that is to rob people, to supplement their poor pay. Well, we're not getting paid enough, so we'll just browbeat the people and overtax them and so on and make up the difference. Say, well, that's terrible. Yeah, that's terrible. But do you know that sometimes God's people rob God of his tithe and offering to supplement their poor pay? Oh, they wouldn't do that, would they? You can read about it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. It was going on in Israel. God took note of it. Discontentment fuels greed, and greed makes people unthankful because in their mind, they never have enough So they have a gripe against God and his provision. Solomon describes the workaholic in these terms. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. So you get the idea. He doesn't have a family here to support. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content. For who am I toiling? A miserable business. Ecclesiastes 4, verse 8. You know, this is often the world, but it ought not to be God's people. There is life beyond work. I understand the biblical injunction to store up food for winter, the provision. We are to learn from the ant, right? We're to store away money for retirement. And the legitimate pursuit of employment that will better you as opposed to staying in the status quo is important. Paul told the slaves at Corinth, if you can gain your freedom, do so. In other words, don't, you don't have to just stay where you are because you're a slave. Once a slave, always a slave. No, if you can shed the slavery, lay aside the shackles, if you can be improved economically and socially, do it. But somewhere we need to assess whether our pursuit of more money is to make ends meet or to enable us to buy the desires of our heart. I can't answer that for you. I can't judge you in these matters. Wouldn't try. 
These are your personal struggles. But I can enjoin you to consider these biblical perimeters set by God. What perimeters? Well, number one, we must watch out for greed. We must guard against being discontent with our lot in life. We must not steal from others, especially from God, to fund our expenses and wants. We must not be lazy and indifferent to God's requirements. What? If a man will not work, then he shall not eat. That's God's rule, which Paul told the Thessalonians, because we hear that some among you are idle, that they are not busy, but they are busy bodies. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10 and 11. All the while, Paul and his fellow ministers worked night and day, in his words, laboring and toiling so that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 8. So discontentment or greed is an impediment to being thankful. You always think you have to have more, you have to have more, you have to have more. Or you have to have new, or you have to have different. It'll take you down the wrong path. Jealousy and envy are impediments to thankfulness too. The two words are not identical, but they are closely related. Jealousy, the Greek word zelos, means to be heated. And if you put a Z there, zealous, then it's to be heated in a good sense. In the good sense of being zealous for right causes. Sometimes we see this politically and it's good. Get upset about some of the injustices that go on. Be zealous in trying to change things. So Z in front of the word. Envy is a different word. The Greek word, it means the feeling of ill will towards one who has prospered over you and the intention to do something about it. Uh Uh-uh. Envy doesn't sound like it's going to be innocent. The distinction is this. Jealousy can be either good or evil. In jealousy, we may be inspired by others to emulate them. We want to become like them because they display what we are not and we like what we see in them. Some character trait or whatever. So it can be good in that sense. Envy, on the other hand, never has a good side to it. Never. It always has the goal to bring the person envied down of either wishing them ill will or, if opportunity presents itself, of doing them ill will. The Bible says, for example, that Pilate knew 
that it was because of envy that the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to him for what purpose? To be crucified. That's what their intent was. Matthew 27, verse 18. They were out to kill Jesus because they envied his success, his popularity with the people. We're going to get rid of this competitor. Now, because the word jealous can be used in a good or evil connotation, it is sometimes used as a synonym for envy. Genesis 37, 11, After hearing Joseph reiterate his dream, in which God told him that he would one day rule over his brothers, we are told his brothers were jealous of him which does not mean they wanted to emulate Joseph. No. no. <laughs> Rather, they wanted to do him harm. Again, when the women of Israel sang that Saul had slain his thousands in battle, but David his tens of thousands, the Bible says Saul was very angry, and from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9. What did he do with that jealous eye? Tried to kill David time and time again. That's what he did. Now consider how envy or jealousy, in the evil sense, can cause a person to be unthankful to God. Solomon describes a competitive spirit in an evil sense when he writes, I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Hmm. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Here it is a desire to keep up with the Rockefellers that drives people to compete in the workforce, is what he's saying. There's no thankfulness to God for the job they have, for the provisions their job brings in. No, they work to outshine their neighbor as though more money made them better people. They plan to diminish their neighbor's good fortune by outperforming him. That's jealousy. There was a commercial on television some time ago, a long time ago, running now, uh, now long gone, in which a father is leaving his house with his daughter to take her to school. And she says, Dad, just drop me two blocks from school and I'll walk the rest of the way. And she proceeds to volunteer this explanation. Well, that in that part of town, Dad, everyone is driving hybrids. A hybrid, if you don't know, is an automobile that runs on more than one kind of fuel source. That's very good for the environment. You can run it on propane gas or you can run it on gasoline. So what she was saying to her dad is that she didn't want to be embarrassed in front of her 
friends when her dad dropped her off in a environmentally harmful automobile. And then her dad pointed out that, hey, guess what? My car is a hybrid car. And she asked, well, why haven't you said something before? And he answered, I didn't think I had to. This child was envious of her friend's supposedly superior cars and ashamed that her dad didn't have the good sense or the good fortune to keep up with the times, with the neighbors. It's a problem of envy. Sad to say, envy raises its ugly head in the ministry too. Paul was in prison when he wrote his letter to Philippi Church. And he said, and I'm reading here, it is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Philippians 1 verse 15 and following. Do you get it? What a wicked motive. We'll preach the gospel so Paul will be miserable in prison because he can't preach the gospel. It'll be like rubbing his nose into his confinement. Ha ha ha. You're locked away, but we're out here preaching. Something very sinister and wicked about thinking like that. But that's what was going on. Moses experienced a similar event. God's spirit came upon two elders in Israel. One was named Eldad and the other was Medad. And Joshua said to Moses, Oh Moses, my Lord, stop them! Don't, don't, they're prophesying, they're preaching. Stop them! But Moses replied, listen to his reply. Are you, are you jealous for me, for my sake? <laughs> I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Numbers 11, verse 28 and 29. You see where Joshua was? Joshua didn't think that anyone should be speaking for the Lord except Moses the leader. He jealously guarded Moses' position. But Moses himself was not offended and thought like Paul, who told the Philippian brethren, what does it matter that some preach Christ from envy and some from rivalry? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice, and yes, I will continue to rejoice. Philippians 1, verse 18. Now there's a perspective on ministry that's really rare. If they're preaching the gospel, let them preach it. Yeah, yeah, but they might steal some of your sheep. Let them preach. Envy can destroy pastors, brethren. And envy can destroy churches. 
The Corinthian church made the error of rallying around their favorite preachers, Paul, Apollos, Peter. And that created factions within their church. Not good. Paul's answer to them was this. Is Christ divided? Hey, you guys, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 13. And then in the third chapter, he, he says, all things are yours, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter, verse 22. And in the fourth chapter, do not go beyond what is written, then you will not take pride in one man over against another, chapter 4, verse 6. Don't you know, you can learn from Apollos and you can learn from Peter as well as from me. God gets no thanks from people who are enviously devoted to their pet preachers. It's a sad commentary when God's people can only learn from John Piper or John MacArthur or Greg Horton or Carson or Matthew Henry's commentary that they read at home or from their own pastor. These men are all yours, I would say. They're all given to you to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Don't be jealous of one over the other. By the way, it doesn't help our pride issue if that happens. Pride is obnoxious enough without the church patting us on the back and putting us on a pedestal. Okay, how do we cultivate thankfulness to God? Well, number one, endeavor to see God in every circumstance of life because he's there. I'll say it again. How do we cultivate thankfulness to God? Endeavor to see God in every circumstance of life because he's there. Something bad happened to you at late? Not doing very well at work? Having financial troubles up to your neck? Family tension such as that there's never been so much discord in your family as is now? Do you know it's not below God to bring trouble into your life that you might acknowledge him? David put it this way. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But, but now... Now I obey your word. You are good. And what you do is good. Teach me your, teach me your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. Psalm 119, verse 6 and following. You know, sometimes God brings trouble our way to drive us to the scriptures for the answers. Have you not found this to be the case in your own life? I have. You go merrily along on your own way with certain things that you care about, conforming your behavior 
to those little things, forgetting God's will for your life, and wham, God puts you down. Something happens to shake your composure and cause you to think and cause you to change your course. That's good. When I was afflicted, that I might learn your decrees. The New Testament Testament equivalent to that verse is found in Hebrews 12, verse 7 and following. Endure hardship as discipline, the writer says. God's treating you as sons. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Discipline produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Wow. Number one, strive to see God in every circumstance. That'll make you thankful. Number two, conquer greed by learning to be content with who and what you are in life and by learning to be generous, that is giving. Greed and contentment are diametrically opposed to each other. Greed contentment like this James shows the incompatibility when he writes who is wise and understands among has understanding among you let him show it by his good life by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom but if you arbor and bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts don't boast about it or deny the truth Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but it's earthly, unspiritual, and it is of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Wow. James 3, verse 13. Selfishness. Cause us to be unthankful. Practicing love will make you thankful, a thankful person, and destroy envy and jealousy. Say, well, where'd you get that? It's in the love chapter. We often overlook, you know, the little statements that are in 1 Corinthians 13 because they're so fast and rapid and He's defining love, but let's not do that. Love is patient. Yeah, love is kind. Okay, yeah. It does not envy. Love does not envy. Oh, I'll get in there. It does not boast. It is not proud. Notice here how envy is connected with such things as boasting and pride, which is what envy is all about, of course. But notice as well that love does not envy. A person who is jealous of another is defective in love for that other person. People who are too proud to do the menial, the mundane, the routine of life are defective in love because their goal is to be like the Rockefellers and they are certain tasks that they consider to be beneath them. And what should we say in reference to the love of God? How does 
griping and complaining and muttering about one's lot in life, denigrating the food prepared for us, the clothes we are given to wear. How does any of this show thankfulness to God? Well, of course it doesn't. We need to think on better things. We need to think on how blessed we are compared to many in our world. This week I was watching a documentary on Delhi, India. And it was showing how the people get their food. The river was completely covered, matted over. You couldn't see the water, but it was matted over with garbage. You knew there was water under there because this garbage flotation was moving downstream. Mm-mm-mm-mm. But it was all garbage. <coughs> and the people were there with those um, fishing nets that are at the end of a little pole, you know. <coughs> and they're out there and they're scooping up the garbage out of the river so they would have something to eat. Made me sad and it made me sick. Sad that people are living like that in the world and sick because of the times that I complain, I don't like this, I don't like that, I won't eat this, I won't eat that. Well, they'd give their right arm to have that piece of food. You know, there's wisdom in having right thoughts. Paul put it this way. Whatever's true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, if anything is praiseworthy, think about such things. Philippians 4, verse 8. That's the flip side of the first point. See God in every circumstances of life. Yes, even the troubling things. Yes. Now, second point, also reflect upon the good things of life that God brings into your life. We have it better than you think. And let us start by reflecting on our blessings that the Lord has given through his willing condescension to save us from the consequences of our sin. Philippians 2 reads, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but made himself nothing. Made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, 
He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you who will will and act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining, without arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Philippians 2, verse 6 and following. Show your thankfulness to the world. They need to see that. The gripers and complainers are everywhere. You're not not to be God's people. We have so much. Say, well, I don't have this or I don't have that. Maybe so, but in Christ you have the essentials. You have more than the world. Lord, please bless us with the truth of your word. Help us to be a thankful people. I think it would do us some good at times to look at some of the documentaries that are on National Geographic and others. See how other people live in other parts of the world. How they scrape to make a living. How they scrounge in the ground and the forest and what have you just to find something to put in their mouth to eat. And they eat things that would make us throw up. But what else are they going to do? They don't have the wherewithal to find something different. Yeah, here we are in the bounty of America. Where even our garbage is far superior than the food that much of the world has to eat. Make us thankful, Lord. Help us to be thankful. And in thanksgiving, we can become givers, not takers. Help us to be willing to share what you've given to us. For the glory of Jesus, the spread of the gospel, we ask these things. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity. And that's page 98. 98 in Trinity. Let's stand together as we sing.
Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, for the truth of the charge, the command, in fact, to be thankful. Make us a thankful people. We're so blessed. <clears throat> I know we get down in the dumps at times and we begin to gripe about this and that and we wish we had this or we wish you could go here or whatever. Or maybe we have health issues and so we complain. But help us to see the bigger picture and to realize that America is of all the nations blessed in the world. And within America, of all the people that are blessed, it's your church, it's your people. We have not only the material blessings, which all Americans enjoy, but we have the spiritual blessings in Christ, which only those who believe possess. Now our prayer for America is that you would bring about our revival, that you would, in fact, send your Holy Spirit upon more people, that there would be an outbreak of the Spirit's power, as it was in the days of Pentecost, when thousands of people came to know Jesus as Savior. And that was not a happy time socially. Rome was in power. They persecuted God's people, the Jews, and the Christians as well. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to see we need to stand with Christ, and we need to be thankful for where we are, thankful for our country, thankful for our leaders, praying for them as the Scripture says we ought to, Thankful for our daily food, our daily clothing. Thankful for our housing. Thankful for the jobs we have. Thank you for the education available to us and our children. Thankful, 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 Lord, make us thankful. For your glory, we pray these things and for our good. Amen. Amen. Real quick about the, the decorating party. Is it okay if we change it to 10 a.m. instead of 1 p.m.? Rachel wasn't thinking. She's usually asleep at 1 p.m., so she won't be here. <laughs> she works third shift. So sure. is 10 a.m. okay for those of you who are going to come? Is that good? All right, we're going to change it to 10 a.m. on Saturday. <laughs>